Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Control Amplified podcast. I'm Len Vermillion, Editor-in-Chief of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com. I'm with Jesse Hill, Process Industry Manager at Beckoff Automation USA, and we're going to talk about how traditionally process plants have been deployed with point-to-point wiring, custom multi-pair home run cables, and large complex marshalling cabinets with hundreds or sometimes thousands of termination points. But we're going to change the conversation a bit. We're going to talk about the many benefits of remote I.O., including enhanced physical layer diagnostics and wiring reduction, lower costs, and increased flexibility in plant networking topologies. So first of all, Jesse, thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Looking Wonderful. forward to the conversation. Wonderful. So let's start with some of the benefits to remote I.O., particularly for large-scale processing plants. What can you tell us those are? Yeah, well, there's a multitude, to, to be honest with you, and, and I'll run through some of these, but you know, kind of starting with scalability, right? I mean, remote I.O. allows for easy scalability and expansion of an automation system. You know, it's much easier to add or remove field devices without major modifications uh, to the existing infrastructure. And, you know, if you have to add a field device in a remote I.O. setting, you know, it's just easy to add another I.O. card to the rack that's in the field versus having to pull a wire all the way back to the control room. Speaking of wiring, I see, think I kind of see that as one of the, the biggest benefits, right? It mm-hmm. significantly reduces the amount of wiring, the cost, the cost of installation. You know, by, by placing the I.O. devices closer to the field or the process, remote I.O. eliminates the need for extensive wiring, right, in between the, the control room. So this not only can significantly de- decrease uh, the cost, but also installation and maintenance cost, especially in large-scale applications, which we're talking about. Yeah, you know, just, just a real simple example. I've worked a lot in upstream oil and gas. And uh, you think about a tank battery in a remote oil field, you've got eight tanks and, or maybe 16 tanks with two or three, you know, filled devices connected to it. So you're talking 32, 48 individual wires going back to control panel versus with a remote IO setting, you could wire everything up to a remote IO node and just have one cat five cable going back, you know, the 30 or 40 yards. And you take that same example and apply it to a large scale refinery or chemical plant where you're talking thousands of IO points, it really, really can reduce the wiring. So yeah, you know, that, so that really uh, simplifies maintenance as well. Since the field of devices are distributed, uh, it makes it easier to access those devices, uh, locate error with the wiring issues. Um, and of course, modern field buses have many diagnostic features that can reduce troubleshooting time, which I'm sure we'll get into that as well. I think you also see some uh, performance improvements. Uh, so remote IO systems can enhance that system performance by reducing signal transmission and, and the load on the CPU. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the devices located closer to the field or the process, you know, data can be transmitted faster, leading to improved response times. Also reliability. So distributing IO devices, you know, when you have a failure of a single device component, uh, it doesn't result in the comp- complete failure of entire system. You know, for instance, in like a daisy chain bus scenario, losing a device or a component upstream could cause you to lose uh, communications downstream for all the those devices. And I think another big one is is enhanced flexibility, right? Yeah. So uh, remote I/O allows for greater flexibility in system design and the layout with those devices placed remotely. Um, the systems components can be strategically positioned based on factors such as you know environmental conditions, the physical space constraints. Also, you know, with process plants, we do a lot with hazardous areas. So, you know, a lot of times it's just simply not possible to put, you know, a central process unit controller, DCS, whatever it is, in, in a hazardous environment. You just 
simply can't protect those from explosion. But it's quite easy to put a remote I.O. node into a hazardous area. You know, Beckoff, we have uh, numerous remote I.O., not only couplers, but I.O. devices themselves that are already approved for, for zone two. And then, of course, we can also work with devices in zone one or division one with, the, with intrinsic safety. So lots of different advantages to remote I.O. So how common is remote I.O. at this point? We hear a lot about it. Is it something gaining yeah. momentum uh, in the industry, in industry in general? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's it, it's become extremely common, you know, especially mm -hmm. in the process industries, right? When you're dealing mm -hmm. with such sometimes vast uh, area that's, that's covered by the automation system. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think also, you know, there hasn't really been a, a great field bus standard in the process industry that's been widely adapted. Yeah, you know, there's been some fits and starts and, you know, foundation field bus was pretty big for a while, but there were some issues there. And, um, you know, maybe Ethernet APL is that standard going forward. We'll see. Um, but, but you know, what I see in, in my work is that most greenfield installations and process plants are utilizing some sort of remote IO infrastructure. And uh, many of the customers we work with, the engineering firms, the integrators, you know, they're working on projects to migrate, you know, from centralized I.O. to remote I.O. for, you know, just for all the advantages we discussed. So in my opening, I talked about those physical layers and diagnostics. So how, how does diagnostics work in a remote I.O. system? We know how it does in others, but. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, the big thing is since you can transmit so much data uh, via industrial Ethernet networks, uh, there's just a lot of data there that you can transmit. So there's a lot of diagnostics that, that you can do. So you compare that to a point to point, four to 20, even a four to 20 milliamp with heart, you know, it's it's somewhat limited in how much data you can transmit. Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots of different diagnostics. You know, we, we utilize EtherCAT in, in our Beckoff ecosystem. And, you know, it comes with a multitude of diagnostic capabilities, you know, information about communication errors, such as lost frames, excessive jitter, uh, issues with data synchronization, you know, network health, you know, diagnostic data can can look at uh, information about the overall health of the EtherCAT network, such as the number of devices connected, the topology, bandwidth utilization, and then also data integrity. So, you know, EtherCAT incorporates uh, CRC checks, so cyclic, redu cyclic redundancy checks mm -hmm. to ensure data integrity. So data related to CRC errors can help identify issues with data transmission reception. And because of the way that EtherCAT utilizes uh, the bandwidth so well, uh, we actually track six different types of CRC errors. So in the instance of a transient fault, let's say, you know, shielding is grounded out in the cable, you know, it can tell you what the failure mode is, which cable it is, and, you know, which slaves it's affecting. So it makes that troubleshooting and maintenance piece of it just, just much easier. You know, we can analyze the network load, right? Uh, EtherCAT Diagnostics can look at, you know, provide insights into load distribution, identified bottlenecks in the network, potential areas of optimization. You know, an another big one with, with all this data is being able to transmit all this data is event logging. You know, mm -hmm. so EtherCAT devices can log events such as errors, configuration changes, device-specific events, and which, again, just helps in troubleshooting and also historical analysis to go back and look at, you know, what caused certain events and those sorts of things. So, obviously, when we go from something centralized to remote and any kind of remote operations, um, the risks become something people start thinking about. So, what are the risks for remote I.O. and, and how are they mitigated? 
Sure. Yeah, I, I would say the biggest one overall would be, you know, when you're when you've got a lot of devices and you are consolidating the wiring. So maybe you have one Cat five cable going back. You know, if that single cable is damaged or cut, mm -hmm. right? You're going to lose a whole, a whole host of devices and mm -hmm. not just one or two. So I'd say that's the biggest one when you're dealing with remote I/O. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's there's ways to to mitigate that, and mm -hmm. and we certainly recommend you know uh, media or field bus redundancy. So, mm -hmm. you know, EtherCAT itself natively uh, can support a redundant ring network so that, you know, if one of the cables gets damaged, it's not gonna have any communication on the network. Mm -hmm. So not only does it keep the network up, but it also, again, going back to scalability is a, a really big advantage of remote IO with a redundant uh, EtherCAT network. If you have to add a device, remove a device, you can do that. Uh, why the process is still still working without you know having to shut down the process to add those devices but you know communication isn't broke so you know that that uh, gives you some additional additional resiliency another thing that's you know a, a small benefit uh, with an ethercat mm -hmm. it, you know it's the redundancy concept is not bound by the same physical media so your primary route may be copper you know, why you have a secondary redundant ring uh, using fiber, which again, just gives you some additional resiliency. It's, I think the other kind of biggest risk when, you know, installing or deploying a remote IO system mm -hmm. has to do with cybersecurity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, with industrial ethernet type protocols, when you're dealing with IP addresses and switch-based uh, networks, you know, those network fill devices are now directly visible and accessible in the overall plant network and, and most likely beyond that, right, to the corporate network, uh, to ERP systems. So there's you know different threat vectors now that can be introduced, not just in the IT network, but also the OT network. So um, that that that's an issue, right? We're dealing with industrial uh, Ethernet protocols. And that that's where I you know, see that EtherCAT has a real major advantage over some of the others mm -hmm. is in cybersecurity. And, and that's because EtherCAT is based on Ethernet, but it's not IP-based. So, you know, it uses Ethernet physical media, but it doesn't use IP addresses. So, you know, most cybersecurity attacks do latch on to an IP address, and that's mm -hmm. how it propagates through the network. Well, with mm -hmm. EtherCAT not using IP addresses, it simply doesn't recognize them. It simply rejects them. So, you know, I, I see that's a big way to help mitigate that cybersecurity risk when you're moving from, you know, four to 20 uh, point to point to more of a networked environment. So what are some of the best practices then that maybe you've seen or been involved with, with setting up or migrating from a centralized IO to a remote system? I mean, sure. The way to do that. Yeah. It obviously starts with a good site assessment, a good system design, right. And, and a layout. Find out, you know, where are their clusters of sensors or instrumentation, especially those that are part of a particular process. Uh, group those together in a, in a remote I/O node. I think it's important to understand the different protocols and their limitations. You know, standard Ethernet, for example, only goes up to 100 meters. Mm -hmm. um, so, you're, of course, you're limited, and that's a lot of times not feasible in a, a big processing plant. Um, but, but there are other other ways to mitigate that. You know, EtherCAT does offer extended distance protocol, which can go up to 300 meters. And uh, also if you use EtherCAT over fiber, you can actually go up to 200 kilometers. So understanding the different limitations of the networks is, is a big part of that. Also understanding that protocol and the complexity and expense of setting that up. Again, for instance, you're going with another industrial ethernet protocol. 
Um, one big advantage, another big advantage to EtherCAT is uh, it's it, it doesn't require switches. So whereas most other industrial Ethernet uh, protocols, you do have switches that are throughout the plant. So mm -hmm. you have to, of course, plan for that. You know, where are those managed switches going to be installed? Uh, understanding their, their environmental concerns. Also, you know, going back to hazardous areas, you know, if if you are going to have to put a switch in a hazardous area that further complicates things, you either put it in the EXD enclosure or have to make sure you have a, a rated switch. So, you know, kind of understanding what are the requirements of the network itself. I'd also definitely say consider electromagnetic interference. Be aware of pot potential sources of EMI uh, that can affect communication. I remember, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, uh, I worked for a company which we manufactured parts for foundation field bus. And I was in a big chemical facility in Louisiana and they were having all kinds of jitter and noise issues on their foundation field bus network. And so brought in a product expert, we've got all these diagnostic tools out and we're kind of looking through and he looks up in the cable tray and sees his you know, main foundation field bus home run cable sitting right next to a big thick AC line. And mm -hmm. we didn't have to do any diagnostics on the network. He could look and immediately say, hey, that's your problem right there. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's lots of wires, lots of power running through these plants. So understanding where you're going to have that interference is important. And I'd say, you know, one of the last things is plan in advance for expansion. You know, it's uh, markets and, and these plants are continually evolving. So plan for that future expansion. You know, make sure there's room in the remote I.O. cabinet to add additional modules down the road. Or maybe even put some spares, you know, spare modules in the cabinet. That way, if you have to add some instrumentation, down the road, it makes it very easy. So I think if you follow those kind of steps and choose the right protocol, plan for EMI, plan in advance, then you can deploy a successful remote IO solution. So you've mentioned a few times uh, some of these emerging technologies such as Ethernet APL and EtherCAT and just a myriad of cloud connectivity uh, growing. So how much do these need to grow in order for remote IO to grow? I mean, what's the interplay there between those? Yeah, you know, at the moment, there's a lot of promise. I think there's a lot of excitement around APL, mm -hmm. and, which is, you know, if you think about it, it's single pair Ethernet, mm -hmm. two wire Ethernet, power and communication on two wires mm -hmm. with options for intrinsic safety. I mean, it sounds perfect for the process industry. Can take advantage of the benefits of Ethernet, all that data we can transmit, mm -hmm. use it in hazardous areas, zone one, division one, zone zero. And, and this is a technology that Beckoff is supporting. In fact, we've already announced our first uh, dual channel APL terminal. Um, okay. and, and so we're taking the approach of, you know, not wait and see, we definitely see promise in, in the technology, but, you know, kind of see how market acceptance is. So uh, when I last checked, I think there were a couple of APL filled devices on the market. And there, there are quite a few APL filled switches. Um, so, you know, but with there being a whole, not a whole lot of expertise or knowledge or really filled devices, you know, we didn't think it really made sense to introduce a filled switch, but instead, you know, an IO module, dual channel. That way, you know, if you have a few APL filled devices, you can bring that into one of our IO modules. It's intrinsically safe, you know, for hazardous areas. And so again, rather than having to plan for, um, make a big investment in a eight or 16 port ethernet APL filled switch that you know, there is some expense involved in that, you know, use a, an IO card, be able to pick up those devices, kind of see how the market acceptance takes off. And, you know, we, we really do hope that this is a finally a, a filled bus for process that, 
that really takes off and, and has has some legs in the market. Right. And then, you know, you mentioned cloud connectivity. It's mm-hmm. certainly changing multiple industries and mm-hmm. you know, the process industries and automation is, of, of course, you know, being affected by that. And, and a lot of it has to do with these smart devices. I mean, all the mm-hmm. instrumentation companies, sensor companies, these devices, you know, can sometimes natively communicate to the cloud. A lot of times it's, you know, through an edge device, uh, but but they just, they can acquire so much information and send so much information. So, you know, we've, we've been so good for a long time at acquiring data, but and so what do you do with the data? So that's where I see where cloud computing really can, can advance. You know, uh, just an example, one, one area we see it used a lot is being able to do predictive maintenance and condition monitoring, that sort of thing. So again, you know, you've got these sensors filled devices that are collecting data. Um, a lot of times it doesn't maybe make sense to send all of that data back to the CPU. You know, there's limited storage there. So you know, if you can send that data to the cloud and you have a repository there, you've kind of got a historian, you know, you can go back and with event logging, look at different events that happen, figure out, you know, this, this unit shut down at this time and, you know, kind of see what happened. And of course you can take it, you know, a couple of steps further where maybe you're running some type of analytics package uh, on that data that's monitoring it. You know, we see a lot of times with rotating equipment, you know, vibration and motors, for instance, can tell you a lot about the health of that device. So, you know, IEP sensors that are, you know, monitoring that vibration. If you're sending that data to the cloud, storing that, maybe you run an analytics package there, then you can really, you know, kind of predict what's going to happen, put some predictive maintenance procedures in place. That way you're able to fix the issue before you have a failure and then you have unexpected downtime. And of course you could even take that a step further and, and we're seeing this. And in fact, we're doing this with some applications where not only are you analyzing that data that's in the cloud, but you're running some type of machine learning algorithm. So then that machine can kind of modify its behavior uh, to mitigate those risks. Again, the example, if you've got a motor and it, it, the machine over time sees at a certain vibration level, then you get some issues with the motor. Maybe it, through machine learning, teaches itself to just slow down a little bit and reset the bearings so that, you know, you just get longer life and less downtime out of, out of the unit and out of the system. So it's, it's really exciting, you know, what we're able to do these days with all of this data and with AI and machine learning. And that's, that's where I see the cloud piece of this really, you know, working in conjunction with automation systems to, you know, prolong the life cycle and, and get more out of your, your equipment. It is exciting indeed. So Jesse, thank you for being here with us today. This is a great conversation. I think we learned a lot. So um, once again, I just want to thank you for being here. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation, Len, and hope we'll get to do it again. Yes, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this much, much more in the future. So thanks again. All right, sounds good. You bet. Take care.